as I've talked about before, Deep Space Nine had a little bit of a troubled production, mostly because it ran into the extremely unique situation of not really performing well. <clears throat> so there was a lot of studio and executive pressure on the show. And yet at the same time, basically kind of going under the radar of the proper executive chain of command, which led to Deep Space Nine being able to do things that the other show, Voyager, was not allowed to. At least not until, you know, people basically gave up on Voyager and then people were like, oh, we can actually do stuff now. It's a really unique position. It's actually kind of, in my, my opinion, makes Deep Space Nine somewhat unique when it comes to television history. I sometimes wonder what the show would have been like if, you know, the, the hands had been off the reins, so to speak. Although, of course, you know, we learned from Iris Stephen Bear about the way he wanted to end the show. <sighs> Anyways, so the command came down from on high. Shake things up. Make things interesting. We're losing people. So they're like, okay, well, we need to touch, we need to touch base with the core Star Trek fans. Let's hit them where it hurts. Let's have Vulcan leave the Federation. I could see ways that could work, but the more I think about it, the more I think that probably was a bad idea. <laughs> like, I, obviously, I have the advantage of historical perspective and, you know, the ability to have hindsight and all that. But I don't think that would have worked nearly as well as this move. Now, at the same time, the Klingons being the enemy, well, that wasn't really anything new, but it was something somewhat interesting, especially at this point in history, and, more to the point, it had the very significant impact of getting Worf on the show. See, if you did the things with the Vulcans, you could have tried to get Nimoy, but Nimoy is way too expensive for this show, especially at this point in history. So that's just not happening. So who do you bring on? Right? Like, who, who do you get as a consequence of this? Well, if you bring in the Klingons, you get Worf. And, well, like it or not, Dorne simply was not as expensive as some other stars would to bring on as a regular cast member. And, of course, this is the important part, Worf was part of the TNG crew. Now remember, at this particular point in history, or slightly more accurately, the years leading up to this point in history, TNG was the big one. That was the big show. It, it attained a level of popularity that honestly surpassed TOS. I'm not saying TNG is better than TOS, there's no need to jump down to my throat, but thanks at least in part to the you know increased level of availability of Star Trek, a lot more people were fans of TNG than had been fans of TOS. So... You know, it was it was a good move to reach for something TNG if you want to pull viewers in. So naturally, they brought Thomas Riker in, who they've already established. Oh, no, wait, they forgot about him and never mentioned him ever again. No, instead they bring in Worf. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not complaining about this, but it's funny, because the episode itself takes about 20, 23 minutes and 27 seconds, I wrote it down, in order to get to the part where Worf shows up. But I, it's actually funny, because I was I was ready to complain if they tried too much of a, like... Who's it gonna be, you know, trying to maintain a mystery? But they don't. It's just plonk, plonk, and here's Worf. That's good, because from a realistic perspective, from a real-life perspective, you have to keep in mind all of the adverts, all of the campaigns. Were, it, was, it was like, DS9, and there's a big picture of Worf. You know, The Way of the Warrior, Season 4 opener, big picture of Worf. Like, they were advertising this everywhere. They were turning up the machine like crazy, which is funny, because the ratings continued to dip after this. I don't blame this on that. In fact, actually, quite the contrary. It is my opinion that season four is when they really started to find a little bit more of their footing when it came to the show. <laughs> I mean, granted, I've been saying that each season thus far. You know, season one was just kind of, uh, Season two was trying everything. Season three was trying to get good. Season four is when they finally started nailing down what they wanted to do going forward. That's probably how I'd explain that. Kind of similar to TNG, actually, now that I think on that. Because <clears throat> season three, they brought in a lot of new ideas, and most of those never went anywhere. I just mentioned Thomas Riker, for example. And there are plenty of other examples that I've been pointing out as we go through. But from season four and onwards, when we introduce a new character, that character's probably going to come back and be a recurring character. I mean, Cassidy Yates is a good example of that, although, yes, I know, she was actually introduced in season three. But she will continue to be a, a, a recurring character henceforth as a consequence of this new direct and approach. Some people think this is directly because Ira Stephen Bear was finally given the actual official title of executive producer and was now the, effectively the showrunner. And I think I agree with that, especially since Ira Stephen Bear himself was very heavy in pushing for the kind of serialization and continuity-heavy approach that would become the norm from now on. I still don't know 100%. I know that Ronald D. Moore became a very vocal voice in the writer's room at about this point in history and was arguably the senior writer in the staff, but... Eh. 
one way or another, what we got is some pretty good storytelling, and ultimately that's what really matters, isn't it? What's also funny, though, is this all came from basically a throwaway line. Back in the diet, in the, uh, blah, 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 blah. back in the Dia's cast, there was a line where a changeling says, the only other problems are the Federation and the Klingons, and I doubt those will be a problem for much longer. That was a throwaway line. It was not intended to lead towards anything. And once again, we see how Deep Space Nine has this really strange sort of uh, adaptive storytelling. Uh, as I've talked about before, they do backloaded storytelling, backloaded writing, rather than front-loaded writing. There, that was never put there as a deliberate intent to lead to anything, but since they had it there, they decided to take it and make it into something. So, this leads us to the Klingons! <laughs> so the episode starts, and uh, there's a tiny little tidbit that I noticed in this episode. Every, every now and again, they pull out these new tricorders. And it's actually the new tricorder model. Uh, I forgot to write down the exact model, please forgive me. But it's basically the final model of the tricorder, the newest prop. Now, what's funny about this is Voyager has already had this model for basically all of Voyager. That's been the regular thing over there. In my mind, this actually makes perfect sense in character, because as I've been complaining about uh, since Season 1, Deep Space Nine just does not seem to have any backing from the Federation or any Starfleet infrastructure supporting it. How many times, even in this very episode, despite the hostile situation, despite the possibility of hostilities, despite the fact that the station has to defend itself, there's still a fleet hours away, because there's no fleet nearby. I mean, I guess you could argue that's nearby. But you get my point. Even up till now, the lack of support is a problem. So it makes perfect sense to me that Voyager, which was a top-of-the-line science vessel, which was a little more, let's say, core to the Federation, would actually get those new tricorders before Deep Space Nine did. It, that's not the real reason, of course. The real reason is just the distribution of props. I mean, the same thing happened over on TNG uh, multiple times, especially with regards to how many times the uniforms would change. Patrick Stewart would get the new uniform like that, and then most of the rest of the main cast would get the new uniform, and then the extras would get the uniform. It's just kind of passing down the line. Anyway, so this episode starts, and they're doing sensor sweeps, and by sensor sweeps I, of course, mean phaser sweeps. Not super impressed with their showing here. As I've actually kind of already complained about in the adversary, it feels like these people, to be blunt, don't really think about the, the significance and severity of what it is exactly that they're trying to do. Keep in mind, these people are trying to search for a changeling, which can change its overall size, that is to say its mass. So it can hide, as Odo quite expertly points out, as just part of a panel display. Right? Never mind the ability to go into corridors. And by corridors, I mean um, conduits or vents. I mean, I've played Deus Ex. So <clears throat> the fact that they find him at all is actually kind of hysterical. What I find even more funny is it takes them three hours to find him. Over three hours, actually. And Odo says that's just unacceptable. And I'm completely with him. That is utterly unacceptable. The best part, of course, is as they kind of emphasize in this episode, outside of different tactics, which we could argue, the simple fact of the matter is they don't have a good way to detect changelings. And, spoiler alert, they never will. And I think that's one of the points of power behind this scene. It's not to show how incompetent they are. It's to show how outclassed they are. I mean, in this very episode... Well, I shouldn't say anything. Um... <clears throat> So, then we see Cisco, and he has decided to adopt the true hairstyle <laughs> that I am rather fond of, I might admit. I've heard a lot of disparate stories about why that is, but the most uh, commonly repeated one is the one I'm going to share for you. For anybody ever showed, there was this old show called Spencer for Hire, and uh, Avery, Brooks, Avery Brooks played a character on there called Hawk, who looks exactly like this. Like, if you, seriously, go Google image search Spencer for Hire Hawk, and you will see Captain Sisko, because it's the same style of the goatee, and it's the exact same shaving. It, it doesn't look different in any way, other than the fact that he's in a suit or whatever, rather than in a uniform. And there was some concern about the similarities there, because he looks freaking identical, and I totally feel that. It wasn't until they felt that DS9 had established itself enough that they were like, okay, fine, go ahead and shave your head. And, and apparently, Avery Brooks was like, finally! Because apparently he prefers it that way. To my knowledge, he still shaves his head to this very day, so, you know, shrug. I wouldn't know anything about that. I do this as a mark of shame rather than pride, but, you know, what the hell do I know? <laughs> 
So then the Negvar shows up. It's good to see that ship again. We've actually mentioned it a couple of times before, and it'll be a somewhat more re- recurring uh, new ship. Funny fact, so as I mentioned back in uh, in the Dias cast, they really wanted to push up the level of battles that they were doing. This is something Iris Stephen Bear personally felt very strongly about. So they had this huge battle with tons of birds and tons of Vorchas and a few Katingas for some freaking reason, and of course the Negvar. Tons and tons of ships. A lot of those were literally ornaments. You, you ever have those? I actually still have. My grandmother used to buy me this, the yearly Star Trek ornament every year for Christmas, uh, back when they used to do that. And so they just bought a bunch of those ornaments and had those, you know, kind of til- tilted together to kind of keep production costs down as they're filming dozens of ships in combat. I probably wouldn't have noticed if not for the fact that someone pointed that out to me, if I'm being completely honest. I think it's a good job. I think they did a good job of presenting it. Shrug that I'm getting ahead of myself. So then they talk about, they actually mention this three times in the episode, that they're doing these retrofits for Deep Space Nine itself. Now, (laughs) my first reaction was, frickin' finally! I feel like I literally just finished talking about this, but the lack of support for Deep Space Nine has been frankly criminal for three years now, in character and out, so it's about freaking time that that Starfleet actually decides to send them some real engineering equipment and some real you know, hardware and some real armaments so they can actually make Deep Space Nine a castle, a fortress, some place to actually hold the line. Because to be completely blunt, if that Klingon squad, it's not even a full armada, just a squadron, decided to attack eh, a couple weeks earlier, DS9 would have been screwed. They had a few torpedoes, some phaser banks, and a shield. And that's it. (laughs) I mean, I am a... Astonished that the Dominion didn't just decide to walk in and win, because, well, to be perfectly blunt, I think they would have. Anyways, so they finally get their new things. Woo! A um, couple thoughts. So the Klingon, a uh, uh, Klingon ship uncloaks, and there's this guy, Martok! I just want to give special praise really quick to J.G. Hertzler. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I've never actually heard it out loud. But Hertzler is someone I've always been very fond of. Uh, he's actually done a couple of roles well, one role, technically, in Deep Space Nine. He will do a couple of roles in the future. He still plays Martok over in STO. He's awesome. But what I find most amusing is apparently he... How do I phrase this? He was only intended to be a one-off character. See, this is kind of the funny thing when I talk about the whole recurring guest star problem that was recurrent through like all of Season 3. Martok was designed to be exactly like all those characters were. He shows up for one episode, then he goes away. But they really liked Hertzler. <laughs> so, similar to another character I could mention, O'Brien, they just kind of kept having him come back and kept having him come back. And his storyline just kind of sort of developed because of the fact that they wanted this character to come back. Once again, showing the backloaded storytelling approach of D-Space Nine. It's not like they had any arc involved. The eventual arcs of Martok, both of them, None of that was designed when they introduced him to the show. He was just a Klingon who happened to not be Gowron. Anyways. So, <laughs> Martok shows up. <laughs> and it's like, hey, my men want show leave. Yeah, okay, sure. And so the fleet decloaks. Now, first of all, why didn't they detect them? There's no indication that that fleet is there. Which would imply that the the Romulan cloak that the Obsidian Order and the Tal Shiar used was inferior, because if you'll notice, they noticed that cloaked fleet almost immediately, then they decloaked, right? But in this case, the Klingons are just suddenly there. That's a weird thing to comment on, and we could, talk, you know, spackle over that if we want to. What I want to know is, how the hell do the Klingons coordinate while they're cloaked? The most obvious answer was they maintain a, like a direct communications net with each other, ships being able to coordinate with other ships directly, which basically forms like a, a pseudo-sensor grid of exactly where each ship is so they don't literally blunder into each other because they're flying very, very close to each other, especially from spatial terms, and in formation, and yet they don't go, oh, I'm sorry, Tokfar, my bad, my bad. Oh, you patah. You know, none of that actually is a problem for some reason. I'm just speculating because it, I find these things to be fascinating to think about, kind of things that I would love to analyze as a writer and come up with answers and solutions for. Anyways. So, uh, then we get to the new intro. <laughs> this is funny because my own new intro will be hopefully showcasing here, uh, you know, the new 
uh, a rumination intro. I like to do a new intro each season. That's usually my approach. Might not be able to do that this time because, as you, if you've been paying attention, the TNG and the DS9 ruminations have actually had custom, you know, CGI renders for the intro. I haven't been pulling footage from anything. All of that is new stuff. So that's hard and difficult to do, especially given the fact that it takes an inordinate amount of time, which is something that neither I nor the actual renderer, K, really has in excessive of quantities, so hopefully we'll be able to keep doing these new intros for you. We'll see. But no, I mean the actual show's new intro. The music, I've heard a lot of differing opinions. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Do you prefer the new intro song or the old intro song? I mean, I like both, if I'm being honest. The new one feels more upbeat and more... I mean, they actually literally add a tempo track underneath it. But in addition to that, it feels like it's more energetic in general. And that makes sense because the intro itself is much busier, far more ships, far more activity. And if I could be so bold, from a purely visual perspective, I like that. I like the showcasing of there being more ships and more activity with regards to what's going on, because I think that makes sense. Deep Space Nine was originally sold as the outpost border, right? The, the most frontier that it gets. But ever since that wormhole opened, and ever since the Dominion became a thing, well, it started being more like a regular hub of transit. It stopped being the frontier, right? That's what normally happens to the frontier. I mean, anyone remember when, uh, like, I don't know of a, a city off the top of my head. <laughs> Some place in Kentucky was as far west as we'd been, right? So, it makes sense. I'm with it. As ever, curious of your guys' thoughts. So then Quark, in complete contrast, pokes in and is, notices how quiet it is. Now, I kind of like this because, first of all, it shows Quark's insight into people. The Klingons really are being way too quiet here and way too serious. And we've actually seen Klingons on in Quark's bar specifically before. They're not quiet. They're like, rah, rah, wine, glug, glug. You know, that's usually the, the Klingon approach to that, not... Now, what I find most amusing is, as usual, they completely ignore Quark. And by they, I mean specifically O'Brien and Bashir. They both just go back to playing with their food. Like, it's not a big deal. Do you guys not know them? I mean, I know everyone likes to just kind of you know, spit down at Quark for some damned reason or another. But the man has observational skills, and he's got a point. <sighs> Anyways. So... Martok goes to meet them, and the very first thing that Martok does is the blood thing. In fact, he suggests it. He is the one who initiates the cut the blood to make sure we're who we really are thing. Yeah. Anyways, <clears throat> so then they talk about what's going on. They're here to fight the Dominion. Now, I like this episode a lot, actually, but I have to admit... <sighs> Maybe I'm just too jaded, or maybe I've done too much political analysis and military analysis in my life, but all I look at at this is the Federation in general, Starfleet in specific, and Cisco in personal, handle this entire situation really, really badly. Their military allies, long-term military allies, decide to go ahead and send a squad of vessels with the, ostensi the ostensible purpose of maintaining a defensive line against the Dominion, and they're all uneasy about it, or I'm not sure, or we've seen no signs of a Dominion attack. I know this is going to sound really strange, but it's kind of interesting to me because two, uh, two reasons. First of all, this is the first time there's actually been a real fleet here defending the line. Now, Starfleet has occasionally sent ships temporarily to this area, but no long-term station defenses, no mobile defenses, as I like to think of it, rather than the station itself, which would be a stationary defense. You know, uh, ca caval mobile cavalry, which can ride out, versus the castle, right? Having that cavalry is very important to maintaining that line. And yet, Cisco acts like this is like, why are you, why are you here? There's no, there's no sign of an attack. And if there was a sign of attack, how long do you think it would take the Klingons to get here, Cisco or Starfleet? Like, I, I, I'm actually weirded out by how objectionable he finds this whole thing. Second point, and forgive me for being cynical, but why do they need an excuse to attack the Dominion? The Dominion has already a, a, a committed, let's just be honest with it, but... Uh, blah, 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 blah. God, I can't talk this morning. Let's just be honest about it. The Dominion has already done multiple acts of war against the Federation in specific. The Klingons don't really need an excuse to go attack the Dominion. 
Now, that being said, it is nice to know that they aren't going to just charge on through and start attacking Dominion headquarters. At least they have enough intelligence to realize that that would be a mistake, especially with such a small squadron. But at the same time, since this is being posited as a purely defensive thing, why is nobody even thinking about the possibility of preemptive offensive maneuvers? Now, I know the answer to that. It's because it's the frickin' Federation. As I've pointed out several times before, in fact, I think this has even come up on the TNG stuff because of how relevant it is to the Federation's approach to things. The Federation will let someone walk all over them, over and over and over, before finally doing something about it. (laughs) And that will eventually become true, and arguably lead to things being much, much worse than they should have been. Anywho, so... uh, There's this bit with Kira. This episode does something very right, in my opinion. It has a lot of non-tense moments. This is supposed to be the big shake-up episode. But at the same time, it takes multiple times to just have the camera go over here for a bit. Here's Dax and Kira on the Hollow Suite. And here's a little bit of insight into their characters. And here's, you know, O'Brien and 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 Bashir and the dartboard. And here's Odo and Bashir. You know, little character moments are scattered throughout the whole work. It's really good. But it also is good from a purely pragmatic perspective. The idea of, well, we're trying to draw in new viewers. Let's show what those new viewers, what Deep Space Nine is like, right? This isn't all about the fight against the Klingons. In fact, that barely comes up. That's more like the conclusion, the climax of the work. So, it's good stuff. Anyways, oh yeah, Garak and Odo. That's also another very good scene. Uh, the drinking trick is awesome. And it's nice to see Garak, excuse me, Odo, getting better at socializing and following through on his promise to start having breakfast with uh, Mr. Garak. So there's this line I have here, which I write down. I said, the Cardassian threat. Now that's an interesting line to me. See, Remember that from a galactic perspective, Cardassia is right next door to the wormhole. Like, it's Bajor, and then there's, like, you know, the, the, the outer Bajor system, and then I think there's, like, one other system, and then there's Cardassia. It's practically right next door, again, especially from a spatial perspective, so not particularly far. A few hours trip at warp, that's it. Now, I point that out because that means Cardassia Prime, and the Cardassian territory in general, is at prime risk to Dominion invasion, since the Union is, let's be honest with ourselves, the primary military power that would be first encountered, geographically speaking, if anything was to come through the wormhole. And thus, you can kind of see the interest in Cardassia in general. This is also when we start to hear about the civil overthrow of the Cardassian government. One of the things I like, and if I'm not mistaken, they never really answer this, is the fact that the Cardassian overthrow to the Detapa government, to the civilian government, could have been prompted by the founders, or could have not. They never answer this question. And I like that because, well, both sides are logical. This will actually be discussed much further in the episode, when Kira and Worf and all the other, and Odo and all the others discuss exactly what could be happening on Cardassia Prime. We find out, I mean, they've been laying the seeds for this for a while now. There have been multiple episodes discussing the the fact that there are dissident movements within Cardassia, that there are significant members of the government who do not agree with things, and that there has been a significant shift in trying to do this overhaul. With the near-total annihilation of the Obsidian Order just a few episodes ago, this is the perfect time for a civilian coup. Right? (laughs) Anyways... So the Klingons push for Odo. Odo, of course, pushes back because, well, he knows how to handle Klingons, at least to some extent or another. So he pushes back, and the the Klingon backs off. But funnily enough, his argument is, if you weren't wearing that uniform, you'd be dead. I don't think the Bajorans are actually allies of the Klingons, but let's let's skip over that. Garak definitely doesn't have a uniform on, so of course they beat the crap out of Garak. Garak's perspective is very interesting to me. They do beat the crap out of Garak. He actually needs surgery in order to be recovered from that. And yet, he kind of brushes it all off. And I find that to be a very pragmatic way of thinking, a very Garak way of thinking. Because he's right. What has been done to him has already been repaired by the time he's talking about it. It hurt, but the hurt was temporary. In place of it, well, he got to insult them, and I don't think he really believes that those insults will last them a lifetime. But what I do think is that, in his mind, it really just is not that big of a deal. I do think Garrick is very curious as to exactly why they are so against him, and doesn't really have a good answer for that, at least not until later, but we'll get to that later. So, then a scene happens that... uh, uh, 
Okay. So there's a scene that happens where the Klingons stop a freighter to search it for any possible changeling imitators. Now, Sisko rides out into the frickin' Defiant in order to stop them. Uh, God, do I even need to explain how actually weirdly complex and convoluted this situation is? Their military allies, who are here specifically in order to aid in their defense, are searching and detaining uh, freighters in a surprisingly peaceful fashion, it's worth noting, in order to test them for changeling infiltrators. Okay? With it. Now, Cisco says, well, you can't do that. This is an, un and I, I want to quote this, they have, their legal jurisdiction is that it is against Bajoran law to have an unwarranted search. I hate to be that person, but how do you define unwarranted? Now, in real life legal jurisdiction, there's actually levels of, of warranted, to put it simply. There, there's a whole chart. Um, and reasonable suspicion is pretty easy to justify. It's, it's actually one of the most easiest things to justify. Reasonable doubt goes a little further down, and, and there's a whole list, but the point being, I think they have a perfectly warranted reason to search this freighter, especially in the relatively peaceful manner that they're doing. They're looking for changeling infiltrators. Cisco says, do you have any evidence? Of course they freaking don't. They haven't searched it yet. In fact, multiple times, Cisco says, do you have any evidence? To which the reaction is always, no, of course we don't. What do you think we're freaking looking for? I mean, they don't say it that way. But I found myself almost yelling at my screen, Cisco, why are you so against this? Like, I'm sorry, I know that sounds so strange to say, but I feel like Cisco is acting unnecessarily antagonistic towards his military allies who are attempting to look for infiltrators. Now, that being said, there is a very serious argument that can be had between the, 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 the you know, it's, it's the whole security versus freedom argument. It really is something that Deep Space Nine will cover again in two of my favorite episodes uh, not too long from now. Homefront in Paradise Lost. I've referenced them many times. So <laughs> I get that that's the argument, that this is the freedom versus security debate. But at the same time, it really feels like Cisco comes way too hard down on this particular craft, a craft which answers openly and honestly, says we're just going to do this search. They haven't opened fire on anyone. They haven't tried to hurt anyone. And then Cisco says, well, I'm going to tell you you have to not do this. And they say, I have my orders. So rather than doing something like contacting Gowron or contacting Martok and basically kicking it up the chain of command to adjust those orders, they fire at him. And the guy's response immediately is, we're your allies. Why are you shooting at us? And I, the, credit to the guy who plays the, the Klingon thing. I don't even think he got a name. Uh, I could be wrong about this. But credit to the guy who plays the Klingon commander because he sounds suitably ludicrous. Like he's legitimately confused. Why are you attacking us? Why? I don't even understand what you're doing here. And this guy is, of course, eventually killed for his actions of not attacking the Federation ship. Now, that's part of the whole plan, of course, but I don't want to get into that right now. So they, they precipitate this entire situation on flimsy legal justification involving aggressive actions towards a military ally. I want to keep stressing that point because Cisco's girlfriend was on board. Now, I understand being protective of the people just as well as anybody else does, but you cannot tell me that there was not a better way to handle this. Then again, someone actually was analyzing the episode. God, I can't talk. This episode, and they made a mention of the fact that this episode was a really good way to showcase the difference between Cisco and Pat and and Picard. Picard was the kind of person who was on top of things, like it or not. He was the he was the planner. He's the officer. He's he's the general. The person who walks into the battle already knowing how he wants to deal with it, the front-loaded strategist, if you will. Cisco's the back-loaded strategist. He's adaptive, he's dynamic, but he doesn't have a plan, really. And you can kind of feel that a lot in this episode. There's several times where Cisco just does, and he's like, I... okay, now I guess we'll do this. Like, he doesn't really have a plan in mind. I'm not criticizing, by the way. It's an interesting way to contrast the two characters and keep them distinct. So it really feels like the reason Cisco goes off in the handle here is because, well, that's Cassidy's ship. And that's pretty much the full extent of his his argument. Well, that's Cassidy's ship. Okay. <laughs> it's funny because I kept waiting for a line about, you know, oh, our cargo's going to go bad if we're delayed, or they're expecting us in such and such, but there's no time delay. The delay of being searched wouldn't have affected Cassidy or her ship 
at all, or at least they don't say it would have. Which, you know, might have at least helped add to some of Cisco's case in this one. I, I'm, I'm going to get tons of flack for this opinion, I just know it. But this whole scene just kind of graded me the wrong way. So, the Klingons, being military allies, decide to acquiesce to Bajoran law and move their ships outside of Bajoran space. There you go. We are now legally in, in congruence with your laws. Any other questions? <laughs> so then, you know, they bring Worf on. Uh, O'Brien greets him, of course. Now, there's a couple. There's a couple of really good scenes with Worf. First of all, it is interesting because I know this sounds really strange, but. I, I, Michael Dorn doesn't have really good chemistry with almost all the actors on Deep Space Nine in this episode. He will, of course, eventually develop it, but unlike some other actors which just immediately click with each other, Dorn doesn't click with basically anyone except kind of O'Brien. And that's probably mostly because the two actors have actually already worked together. It will take uh, Michael Dorn some time, in my opinion, before he finally gels in and feels like he belongs with the rest of the crew and actually interacts with them in a dynamic and you know, good way. I mention that because a lot of the Worf scenes, especially on this replay, feel really stiff and kind of awkward, and not in a good way, not in a Worf is awkward, I mean in a Dorn is awkward kind of way, you know what I mean? I'm not criticizing, it's just, well, I guess I am criticizing. <laughs> it's just kind of something I noticed this time through. I'm curious if anybody else had the same Im uh, impression. So, there's a, there's a quick run-through of scenes, basically, that our Worf gets introduced to the Deep Space Nine crew. You know, uh, he, he meets O'Brien, they introduce themselves to darts, uh, he sees Kira, who is, of course, immediately embarrassed and flourished. Worf, of course, handles everything in stride because he's Worf. Dax says, hey, you know, aren't you Curzon Dax? And she says, and Worf looks really flustered. I looked it up. What she says is, yeah, but I'm a lot better looking than he was. So for anybody curious what Jadzia Dax said to Worf, she basically just flirted straight into his face in Klingon and then never admitted it to anyone else around them. Just a funny little fact there. Anywho, then Worf establishes himself against uh, Drex, uh, Bartok's son. He just, who are you? I am Drex. Okay, so Worf smacks him, which if you've been paying attention to Klingon culture, that's the I'm ready to fight you thing. And Worf is pretty good about that in specific. Because if Worf just wanted to beat him, then he would. But he doesn't. He wants to initiate combat first, allows the other to pull a knife, then he beats the crap out of him. As a proper Klingon should. So he takes his knife, disgracing him, forcing Martok to meet him. It's like, I must know what's going on here. You must tell me what's going on. Now, it, this kind of cuts forward to a scene where Dax and Worf are battling on the holodeck, or on the holosuite, excuse me. It's a good scene, because it helps to emphasize something. They say it outright, but even if they didn't, we would pick up the idea. This is not worth relaxing. This is not worth entertaining himself. This is not worth calithenetics. He's frustrated. You can just see, and of course Dorn is a good enough actor to get this across, you can just see how wound up he is, how taut he is about this whole situation. Just like, ugh, this is so stupid. No one's talking to me. My own brother isn't talking to me. No one will answer me. What the hell am I supposed to do here? So, <clears throat> this of course leads to him finally finding out what the hell's going on. This brings me to my first question. Why were the Klingons so tight-lipped about all of this? I know that sounds like a weird thing to bring up, but considering the Klingons have been fairly accommodating in almost every respect, especially politically, and given that Gowron knows how to handle the political arena, especially when it comes to Federation, why did they decide to keep this attack on Cardassia so quiet for so long? I know that sounds like a strange thing to point out because obviously the Federation would object, but they go to a weirdly large amount of effort to keep this quiet, Right up until it's found out, and then they're just like, oh, yeah, so, yeah, no, we're totally doing this. Bye. There's even this bit where Martok is surprised the Federation will not support them in their attack against the, the Union, even though they've been going out of the way to prevent the Federation from finding out because they believe they wouldn't support them. I'm not sure if that's a plot hole or it's the fact that it's Martok that is actually why that's happening. I don't know. Anywho, actually on to page two of notes now. This is a big episode. I was actually really debating if I wanted to do this in two 
you know, ruminations are one. I decided to condense it because really this isn't two episodes like most two-parters is. This is just a long episode. So kind of made sense to go and do this. I, I have no idea how long this rumination will be. As ever, I don't have a minimum or a maximum time limit. I just talk until I run out of ton things to talk about. Which leads to the funny political situation the Federation finds itself in. They know, with total certainty, that the Klingons are now going to go and attack the Cardassian Union. They cannot call ahead and warn the Cardassians. Because, oh, excuse me. Ugh, because despite the fact they're willing to push the Klingons in ways that they probably shouldn't have because of Sisko's girlfriend, the fact of the matter remains, flat out warning one of your allies' enemies that that ally is about to attack them, that's a pretty big faux pas, especially politically. That would really destabilize the situation and basically turn the Klingons right around on the Federation. So instead, they decide to do you know, the next logical thing. And in fact, I actually really love how they slide the information to Garrick. It's extremely obvious, incredibly overt, but I do love how they do it in a way that would give them legal, you know, deniability if they had to. It's like, I don't know how. Maybe someone found out. Maybe there was some kind of intelligence leak. Oh. Starfleet intelligence is the best intelligence in the galaxy. I can't even say that without laughing. Anywho, maybe there was a surviving member of the Zimsidian Order that found out somehow. Wink, wink. Anyways, so they um, there's a nice line where they mention that the next logical target for the Kardas uh, for the Klingons is Bajor, and I agree. If I was in the Klingon position right about this point in time, Bajor would probably actually have been my first target. To be completely honest with you, the thing is, they went after the Union because they had an excuse to go after the Union, but that's not what they care about. As is made very evident in this episode, this isn't really about the Dominion. And this isn't really about the, the changelings. That is the excuse. The problem is, we get this impression, and this is very well emphasized in the next several episodes, that there has been a continuing push, politically speaking, within the Empire, in order to say, you know what, we really want to go back to conquering. One of the interesting things about the Klingon Empire is, based on all that we learned throughout the course of all of the Star Treks, the Klingon Empire is what I would call a more standard fictional empire. Or, I, I say fictional empire, obviously real empires are like this too. To explain what I mean, a standard empire is an organization in which there's the core. The core may be a group of people, it may be a geographical location, uh, it may be a specific species or race, it may be some of the elite, you know, it, it's one group of organization, in this case, the Klingons and Kronos specifically. And then they expand and they expand and they expand through military conquest, specifically in order to siphon resources, personnel, wealth, and power back to the core. In other words, the purpose of a standard empire is the benefit of the core at the expense of the outside. Make sense? So this is, in many ways, the way the Klingon Empire is shown to operate. They never really go into the nitty-gritty on this, but we have plenty of evidence throughout the course of Star Trek that this is how they operate. They claim a world, they set up their own regional governors, they take resources from it, and those resources go back to fund and expand the Klingon military and the Klingon Empire's might, all the way back in Kronos. And remember, even though this kind of doesn't make sense if you think about it too much, at the same time, it is also logical that Kronos, that is to say the Klingon Empire, was facing self-destruction because of the damage that was being done to Kronos itself. In other words, to put us into simple terms, how well do you think the British Empire would have survived if London, or even the entire British Isles, just... Right? It makes a degree of sense because so much of the nature and structure of the organization is so centric. Removing that center, well, the rest of it just completely self-destructs. Thus, as we talk about it in this very episode, this is exactly how the Klingons are approaching their Cardassian situation. And as we find at the end of the, of the, sto of the story, um, let's say the Klingons are here to stay, there's this bit about how they're continuing to hold the territory they've already set up. They've already set up defenses, they've already set up you know, regional governors and all that fun stuff. They're already taking claim, keeping claim on this territory to send it back to the Empire, because that's what this is really about. The Dominion is a convenient excuse for the Klingons to go back into conquest in order to enrich... And enrich. There's, there's a verb form of that. To, I guess enrich is the word. I want to say enrichen. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> to add wealth to and enrich the core empire. Now, whether or not the Klingon Empire needs those kind of continuing conquests in order to function, that's more debatable and relies on more infrastructure in terms of economic and industry that we simply don't have access to the information of because they didn't get that nitty-gritty in Star Trek. 
but it is definitely the belief of those in charge of the Klingon Empire that they do need to get back to Conqueron. And there's enough historical presence to, sh to show that that is usually the case, that if an empire ever ceases to expand, it eventually crumbles. This has been true of virtually every one of the standard empires throughout the course of real human history. Uh, there's other ways that empires crumble, of course, but if any given standard empire stops expanding and stops conquering, well, <laughs> you can just see how it falls apart. The core worlds or the core territories or the core provinces or whatever, the core stops getting supported. It stops being able to maintain its particular level of living and its standard of opulence and its standard of existence as well as its standard of power being unable to maintain the same kind of military strength, being unable to maintain the same kind of industrial production, and so forth and so on. So it is possible that the Klingon Empire really does need, really putting that in quotes, in order to keep expanding like this. So, claiming the Union, okay, nice big territory-rich area. Claiming Bajor, yep, <laughs> it makes sense. I'm not saying I just I, I condone it. In fact, quite the contrary. I actually think there's plenty of other ways to bypass that particular problem with regards to an empire, especially by the time of Star Trek, where they have access to incredible resource generation and amazing technology that we don't have right now. But, you know, whatever. I'm sure that at least part of it is also because Klingons like conquering. Because it's fun. What? I think we can all admit that. How many of you have played strategy games where it's fun to conquer? Hmm? Now, most of us can enjoy that because we don't place the same value of, you know, these digital numbers in a video game or on a board game as we do a real you know, human life if we were to actually conquer real life. But if you consider the Klingons' romantic relationship with death and how much they court death on a regular basis and how little they seem to perceive life as mattering, especially when it comes to battle, it's not that hard to see that they enjoy conquering too. Anyways... So Garak, sorry, getting back to the episode, Garak decides to go ahead and warn Takat. Note that Takat is still around. I mentioned that back in the episode Explorers, the idea that Takat was kind of shifting over closer to being part of the civilian government, especially given the, uh, the upheaval that was happening when that episode was going on, the upheaval that is at this point is basically shifted over. Now I point that out because at the time that was technically a theory, but I think I could put, I'll go ahead and put an official stamp on that. He actually calls himself, and I quote, the new chief military advisor to the Datapa Council in this very episode. And he even freely admits, you know, Cisco says, so you saw where the winds were going and decided to go with it. And Ducat says, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Notice how once again they managed to make Ducat an interesting and complex character who continues to be part of the narrative. He has not suddenly shifted to be one of the good guys. His own opinion, perspectives, and morality haven't changed at all. However, thanks to political shifting and the reality of con convenient enemies, the Klingons in this case, Dukat has just kind of suddenly shifted over to being basically one of the allies. And we actually see him fighting alongside Garak against Klingon invaders. Yeah. <laughs> so... They mention how the battle plan overall, they imply, the battle plan overall is that the Klingons are going to be met with resistance when it comes to the invasion of Cardassia. And they hope that that will cause the Klingons to back off. Now, Kira says that in specific, which just shows that Kira really, really does not understand Klingons. As I've said so many times, Klingons are all about how you react to them. If you rolled over, if they just rolled over the Cardassian Union and the Cardassians put up zero effort of zero fighting back, more than anything else, that would push the Klingons away. It wouldn't be some glorious victory. It wouldn't be some great conquest. Nobody would be happy about it. They might still claim the territory, per the usual empire thing that I talked about earlier, but there would just be this, and it would really have damaged the invasion and really have hurt the momentum for future invasions. By contrast, fighting back makes the Klingons go, Yeah! Now we gotta earn it! Now it will be glorious battle! And so now they're far more enthusiastic than they otherwise would be. I admit this is kind of a no-win scenario, but I'm just pointing out the fact that fighting back is not going to stop a Klingon. So... Garon... <laughs> Garon pulls out of the Kittimer Accords. This is arguably the end of part one of the episode right here. Uh, the Klingons leave the Kittimer Accords and are no longer allies with the Federation. Note they're not enemies. They're just, they cease being an ally as of this point in time. Garon personally shows up to talk to Worf. What I love most about that scene is that 
you can kind of see that Galron is basically bowing to the pressure within the Empire to be an Empire. I, I, I feel like I just talked about this, but this is when it really becomes clear. The drive for conquest and the need for pushing forward is really what's making this go forward. And Galron, let's be honest, more than anything else, Galron's a politician. A good politician, no less. Not a morally good one. A adept politician. And thus, Galron's going with the flow. And he is legitimately happy to see Worf. It's like, oh, oh, I'm so happy to see you. You've made some enemies, but not me. We're awesome. Let's do this. This is going to be great. Now... What's most amusing, he doesn't say this outright, but Gowron basically lays out the red carpet for Worf here. You are my personal friend. I owe you tremendously. Fight at my side. Let's go crush some Cardassian skulls. And it's implied that this is basically giving Worf, like, the number two slot, you know? Be my first. Be my chief general. Be my supreme commander. Be something. I'd say he's offering him a seat on the council, but he's already done that, actually. He's already given his brother a seat on the council. So you can kind of see this is obviously a significant maneuver, politically as well as personally, because Gowron does value Worf and does actually want him on his side. It's an interesting thing, then, because when Worf declines and makes it very clear he's not declining because of anything personal and because he does still want to fight with him and all that fun stuff, Gowron... He doesn't get insulted. He doesn't get upset. He, he just is like, I can't believe you're doing this. Think about what you're doing. I can't. Why are you throwing this all away? Because Gowron is a politician. Gowron is a Klingon. In other words, external honor, fake honor, being more relevant to him than anything else, really. And he talks about all the things, you know, it's, it's, you don't understand. You're going to lose your lands. You're going to lose your title. You're going to lose your seat. You'll, you'll have nothing left. Why would you do this? I don't even understand. And then Worf turns and says, I'll have nothing left except my honor. Because what is the one thing Worf cares about most is his real honor, his internal honor. He will have maintained his personal code of honor, knowing that doing so will be a very damaging thing to his family, and to his station. But he doesn't care. He's Worf, a real Klingon. So anywho, Son of Moog Effect. That's what it was called, the Son of Moog Effect. Or the Sons of Moog Effect, if you prefer, because Kern kind of follows this too. Anyways, and there's this great bit, by the way. He says, you owe me, and Worf says, I do owe you. I, I do owe you significantly. I would lay down my life for you without hesitation. You know. So then... There's this nice little bit where... I, I actually have several notes here about the Empire thing, which I'm not going to repeat, obviously. But uh, I have this nice little bit where O'Brien reaches out to Worf and Cisco reaches out to Worf, and both of them are like, listen, like, what else are you going to do, right? <laughs> where else are you going to go? And it's funny because if you think about it, TNG's over. Now, granted, the movies keep going, but if you pay attention, the movies basically make excuses for why Worf keeps showing up in the movies. He happened to be on The Defiant for First Contact. He happened to be in the area for Insurrection. No excuses even made for Nemesis. I mean, I guess he was there for the wedding, but that's the full extent of it. And not the wedding, excuse me, the reception. That's it, right? Like, that's, that's, that's all the, the, the excuse that is needed. So it's, it's kind of funny because they could have had Worf leave Starfleet if they chose to. Obviously, they didn't want to. They wanted Worf to be on Deep Space Nine. But I just bring this up because in the moment when this episode came out, several people that I was talking to at the time felt, felt that it might be a real possibility that Worf would legitimately bow out of Starfleet at this point in time. You know, a swan song for the character sort of thing. It's not like they've never done that for Star Trek before, right? For characters leaving the show. Anywho. So, you know... Worf keeps referencing the old ways. I've kind of already talked about that. But he keeps referencing that when he talks about it. I, I looked up the episode, by the way, because I keep saying Errand of Mercy and Day of the Dove, and I keep forgetting which is which. The episode I keep meaning to reference when it comes to the Klingons is actually Errand of Mercy. That's the one uh, that I wanted to bring up. And I've been bringing that up over on TNG, and I'm correcting myself here, even though I'm pretty sure those TNG episodes have, won't even be going live yet as of the time this episode goes live. But whatever. <laughs> I guess that's the nature of recording these out of order, right? The There's this nice little note where he says, we may be helping the changelings to escape Cardassia, to which Siska says, I know, that's the risk we take. Once again, the freedom versus security debate. Note that when they get them on board, they do test them for blood. Now, 
I hate to give this away early, but all I'm going to say is that we know with total certainty that the blood test is actually ineffective going forward, that they have already found a way around that as of now. So, uh, so I'm, yeah, <laughs> I just mentioned that because once again, going back to the adversary, you have to establish logically what is considered an absolute to be a baseline and then build your logical deduction off of that. The problem is all of them assume the blood thing is a baseline and it already isn't. So we'll talk more about that when we get to Homefront and uh, Paradise Lost. So once again, beaming through the shields is actually a big problem. A green shirt dies on the bridge to prove the situation is serious. I only bring it up because Star Trek keeps doing it and I keep thinking it's stupid. There's this interesting line that is said by uh, Bashir. First of all, he brings up the cloak and the Romulan thing. When I mentioned that that cloak, not cloak in the Alpha and Beta Quadrant thing would never come up again, lots of people were like, oh no, they bring it up in Way of the Warrior. You were all right. It is brought up here. And now it's never brought up again. (laughs) Once again, they had no intention to make that a thing. It was just a thing and they threw it away and now they're all just kind of ignoring it. Um, But uh, Bashir has a more interesting line where he says, two decades of peace and it all comes down to this. Because Cisco does have a choice to make. Does he fight against the Klingons, or does he sit back and allow the civilian government of Cardassia to be wiped out? Gotta admit, it is a very powerful moment, and I like the fact that Cisco doesn't decide initially. Remember, he's not Picard. Picard would have walked into this with a plan already in mind. That's pretty clear. Cisco walks into this and just goes, Oh, jeez, what am I supposed to do about this one? Because this is a mess, and what Cisco does is basically the provocation of war. Cisco deciding to take out the Klingon ships and defend that Cardassian Galor, that is what causes the conflict between the Klingons and the Federation right there. And he knows that. It's not like he does this because it's his girlfriend. It's not like he does this because he hasn't thought this out. It's not like he does this because he's being unreasonable. Quite the contrary. Cisco fully understands the full gravity of this action and how significant it is. And he still chooses. That's what a captain's supposed to do, after all. So, they end up destroying the bird. Um, and, you know, damaging their way through the you know, big battle scene, blah, blah, blah. It's funny to see Dukat in a position of weakness, by the way. That's something we'll be seeing more of in the future. And I mention that because he's still Dukat, but it's interesting that his overall, as ever, credit to Mark Alemo, his overall presentation and demeanor is completely shifted when he no longer has the strength and power of the Cardassian Union or the Supreme Military Command or, or High Command at his back. Instead, he's just like, okay, <laughs> well, this sucks. <laughs> it is nice to see a different side of him, basically. And then they start doing blood screening. I only mention that because uh, Ducat protests the blood screening. Several people I know actually thought that we would find out in that moment that Ducat was, in fact, a changeling. Obviously, they didn't end up going that route with it, but it would have been interesting to see if they decided to make him a changeling and, and you know, move in that direction story-wise. So the, the, there's this interesting line. I hate to nitpick, but there's this interesting line by Dax where she says that the ablative pl- plating has failed. For those of you not aware, a blade of plating, a blade of armor, is basically like extra layers of armor that is intended to be destroyed to save all the, you know, sensitive equipment underneath. That's the whole point of a blade of armoring. So I'm not sure what, like, it, a blade of armor failed, you mean succeeded? <laughs> it, it, it's a very minor point, but I only point it out because it would have been more accurate to say something along the lines of the blade of armor's gone, right? Shrug, moving on. So then we get the root beer scene. Several people have pointed to this scene as one of the best scenes in DS9 history, and I actually agree, it is way up there. Now what's funny is originally the scene was supposed to be shot comedically, and then they wanted to instead go with this direction of subtext to make it serious and, and insidious, as they were. And eventually they, they wound up on the insidious side of things, because Iris Stephen Burr was the executive producer at this point in time, and was basically the showrunner. And he wanted to showcase how horrible the Federation was. Now, I don't begrudge Iris Stephen Bear for his negative feelings about the Federation. I really don't, because there's a lot of negative things that can be said about the Federation. But what I find most interesting is I've heard lots of people's different interpretations of the root beer scene, which don't really line up with the intent. 
Now, before I say anything else, I would love to hear your guys' interpretation of the root beer scene. What do you think? <laughs> of the way they act, of the way they react, of the obvious nature of the Federation. It's so bubbling and cloying and happy. And you know what really sucks? Is the more you have of it, the more you start to like it. It's insidious, just like the Federation. I like that line. To me, it kind of indicates, for lack of a better way to put it, the very core fundamental mentality of the Federation. That it's not about homogenization, or at least I'd like to think it's not about homogenization, but rather about mutual respect and cooperation. That we can still work together and care about each other and like each other and form a team, not only even though we are different, but because we are different. Because each of us has something new to add to the whole. I-D-I-C, right? That's just kind of my take on that. And uh, as ever, love to hear your guys' takes. I'll be curious to see what you guys think of the root beer scene going forward. Funny little fact, uh, they had to actually fight tooth and nail to keep the root beer scene in because the episode was running long. And Moore in particular, Ronald D. Moore, was like, no, you have to leave that scene in. It's cut other stuff, cut other stuff. So then they get back to D-Space 9. It's like, okay, we brought the Cardassians. We're cool. And then... It's like, uh, the entire Klingon attack squadron has come back to D-Space-9 and is now in attack formation to attack D-Space-9. Now, <laughs> there's some good human scenes. Uh, Bashir and Odo, Odo and Quark, Garrick and Dukat. I don't have much to say about them. They're all good stuff. They're all good character moments. And each one of them kind of showcases, once again, what DS9's good at, that ground-level perspective. So then... It gets to the point where Cisco calls up and says, it's okay, we tested them, they're not changelings. To which the Klingons say, so, if there was any doubt whatsoever that this is more about conquest and the imperial thing I mentioned earlier, this wipes all those doubts away as far as I'm concerned. The Dominion was just an excuse. This is the need for the Klingon Empire to continue to expand. And they are willing to attack the Federation to do so. Now... That's an interesting point, but I like to think that given the fact that Galron... Let's look at this from an in-character and out-of-character perspective for a second, okay? In fact, I'm going to go ahead and do something real quick. I'm going to toss down the uh, spoilers thing. I'm going to throw the spoilers thing out there. Spoilers, there we go. Okay? Spoilers for future DS9 stuff. Okay, now that we're there. From an out-of-character perspective, we know that Gowron was supposed to be a changeling. That they had intended, when they were writing these episodes, for Gowron to be the changeling infiltrator who was leading the Klingon Empire into all of this. So anything I'm about to say from an out-of-character perspective isn't valid, because that was the original intent of the storytelling. It wasn't until later that they shifted it so that Martok was always the changeling. In fact, we don't even re meet the real Martok until quite a ways from now. But I bring that up because it still actually makes a lot of sense in character if you look at it from the right angle. Because what we're seeing right now is that Gowron, the real Gowron, is so invested into this conquest that he's willing to go to military conflict with the Federation over this. That, to me, says just how much political pressure there is for war to keep going. That he is willing to let go of the biggest alliance he's ever had, not only personally, because that's the reason he's in charge, but also politically and militarily, just to keep his own position safe and secure amongst the High Council. It also kind of implies to me that either he isn't thinking about the Romulan equation or the Dominion equation, or that he believes that they can handle that, one of the two. It also kind of implies to me that this might have been something that he was willing to do basically from the word go. How much of that is true or not is, of course, debatable, because as I've already pointed out, this was not the intent of the writers. The intent of the writers shifted in mid-stride, so we'll have to debate that later. Anyways, I don't actually have much else to say about the rest of the episode. I do like how Worf gives Gowron the out, you know, giving Gowron a direct quote from Kalos in order to give him an excuse to cease the battle. And, of course, the funny thing is the obviousness of this whole episode is really apparent when you sit and think about it. The Dominion want the various powers in the Alpha and Beta Quadrants to fight each other so they're weaker so the Dominion can win. Duh. The Klingons want to conquer. Duh. I mean, we probably could have had some kind of in-betweeny thing here, but... <laughs> 
let's be honest, if the Klingons went to conquering, even if it wasn't to the Federation, or excuse me, if it wasn't to the Union, there's still a pretty good chance the Federation would have been like, no, and we would have had the same relative situation. It just wouldn't have been on Deep Space Nine. Final notes. I know we're still technically in the spoiler section, but we don't have to be at this point. I'll probably get rid of the thing if I remember to do that in the editing. There's this line where they say, you know, the Klingons are maintaining their colonies. Of course they are. I already mentioned that. And Kira says, well, I guess the Klingons are here to stay. And then Sisko says, so maybe they are, but so are we. Executive producer Rick Berman. I found that hysterical. I really did. <laughs> I don't know if that was on purpose, like that was a deliberate dig, but that's immediately how I've taken that more than once. Because as I've pointed out, well... Studio pressure and executive pressure was always kind of a weird thing for Deep Space Nine, especially at this point when Voyager was already going. I did still enjoy this episode quite a bit. I hope you guys have thought uh, enjoyed my thoughts on this, and I look forward to hearing yours. I'll see you next time, guys.